Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is a bonus episode. I'm going to be trying to answer some of your questions that have come in about the great political fiction series that we have been running. And at the end of this episode, we're going to tell you more about what's coming up on Past, Present, Future. But before that, I'm going to hand over to Helen, and she is going to put the questions. This is Helen from the podcast with some of your questions about the most recent episodes in the History of Ideas series on the great political fictions. David, we've had loads of questions and comments about the episode on Gulliver's travels, which seems to have struck a chord, particularly the last line about Gulliver coming home from his final journey as a Tory. Some people loved it, some didn't. Here's one. Outrageous and maddening ending. He became a Tory. Sorry, but WTF? That seemed an entirely unsatisfactory end to an otherwise typically insightful piece. If Gulliver slash Swift is disgusted by rationalising humankind, how could politics be of interest? Explain, please. So, David, you're going to have to explain yourself. Yeah, it's, I, I did see that there was quite a lot of um, feedback and pushback on that last line. It wasn't a throwaway line in that I knew that that was where I was going to end up. It was partly, as a few people, I think, spotted a reference back to the episode that we did with Rory Stewart. So with Rory Stewart, I talked to him about a bit about Gulliver's Travels, but also about the difference between being a Tory and a Conservative and a Tory and a Whig. Conservatism is the more modern thing. It's not part of Swift's world. But conservatism in that conversation was closer to being a Whig because conservatism is the more uh, project-oriented uh, electorally driven version of Tory politics. Being a Tory is something else. And when I talked to Rory Stewart, we were talking about the fact that it's basically an 18th century idea. So when I said he came back a Tory, I wasn't trying to say anything about contemporary politics. It was about the 18th century. And it is true of Swift that he did become a Tory. So Swift is not Gulliver, but he started out as a Whig, or at least a Whig in politics, probably a Tory in religion, but he ends up as a Tory in politics too. I was trying to, though, touch a bit on what Rory Stewart said about what made him a Tory, an 18th century Tory. And his way of summing it up was prudence at home and restraint abroad. And I'm aware in the Gulliver's Travels episode, I didn't say prudence at home, I said revulsion at home, and not restraint abroad, but revulsion and restraint. And the revulsion included he was repulsed by his own wife and children. I'm not accusing Rory Stewart of that. I'm not accusing Tories of that. Um, but there's some connection, I think, between that sense that Gulliver came back from his last journey with a sense that 
so much of what passed for political life in the land that he came from and that he'd spent a lot of his travels trying to defend to all these people who said, why do you do it like this? Why do you do it like that? This doesn't make any sense to us. It kind of seems like you come from a ridiculous place. And for most of his journeys, Gulliver tries to, as a good patriot, tries to defend the English way or the European way of doing things. But by the time he comes back from the last one, he's given up. He can't defend it because he thinks it's ridiculous. And the reason he thinks it's ridiculous is he's kind of seen through it. And he sees that underneath it, we are yahoos. We are these, not just ridiculous creatures, but these grotesque creatures. Now, I'm only talking about 18th century Toryism here, but I feel it has in it that sense that what it is reacting against is the ridiculousness of human pretension, the ridiculousness of human beings trying to be more than that they really are. And Gulliver certainly has that feeling. It's visceral in his case. So again, I'm not sure this is true of all Tories. He's disgusted by the look and the smell of human beings. Um, I think that's probably going too far. But that sense of revulsion is also a revulsion from the ways in which yahoos, humans, pretend to be rational and reasonable and progressive and insightful and have good plans and schemes for making the world a better place. And the Tory revulsion from that is like Gulliver's revulsion from human beings in general, a feeling that this is ridiculous, that we should have spotted that these pretensions that we have don't amount to anything, that underneath it all, we are still those fallen, fallible, foolish, self-indulgent, craven, slightly bestial creatures. So the bit of the book that I was talking about with Rory Stewart was the satire of the Royal Society and the schemes and the projects of the Whigs. The idea is that all those scientists came up with to make the world a better place and the way in which Gulliver slash Swift saw them for the vainglory that they were. The way he goes further in the final part of the book is it's not just about the vainglory of the scientists, it's the vainglory of all of us. And I, I may be completely wrong about this, but I sense that that is a sort of Tory instinct. I was also, and this is maybe even harder to defend, I have this suspicion that Tories quite like horses. And there's, there is, in Gulliver's Travels at the end, scenes where he can't bear to be among human beings. So he goes to sit in the stables and wants to be among the horses. And there's a sort of Tory sense that if only people were a bit more like horses or if only horses were a bit more like people, because horses are so straightforward and elegant and unpretentious. The horse is a very unpretentious creature, sort of quick and um, streamlined. And that also, to me, sort of chimed with what I imagine an 18th century Tory outlook might be. It's, It's about the ridiculousness of the human relative to all the ways in which human beings should try to locate themselves in something more natural, not in a scientific natural sense, but in a sense of more modest, more in the place where you come from. And Rory Stewart was talking about this too. His Toryism is also a localism and a sense that you need to be, you need to belong. And Gulliver at the end of it, he doesn't feel like he belongs in the world of high politics or indeed low politics or anything else. He feels like he belongs with the horses in the stable. It's ridiculous. It's clearly a parody. Um, but it also just feels a bit like where an anti-Whig sentiment might lead you. You don't want to be at the Royal Society. You want to be with the horses. I mean, some of it, just to be clear, clearly 
doesn't fit. And um, when he comes back and he says he couldn't bear to be with his wife and children because they smelt so bad. I'm not saying that that is um, Toryism. And actually, I don't know if I said this strongly enough, I do think that uh, Mrs. Gulliver is one of the most uh, unfortunate and put-upon characters in all literature because when he goes off in his first voyage, in his second voyage, in his third voyage, she's just meant to put up with him going off for years, leaving her with the children. And then he comes back, and you think when he comes back he would apologise and say, this time I'm staying. But after a while he gets bored and he goes off again. But it gets worse because after he comes back from his final voyage, he's not even bored by them. He is repulsed by them and he goes to live with the horses. So she really does get a a rough ride in this. And I'm not saying that that's because she's married to a Tory. Um, But on that last point in that question, if he was really sort of an anti-rationalist in that way, wouldn't he just be against politics? Well, that is the thing about the Tory mindset. And actually, I think Rory Stewart would probably, I'm nervous about saying this, but he would probably recognise something in this, that to be a Tory is to be very, very ambivalent about politics. You're not sure you want to do it. You're not sure you want to have anything to do with it. And Rory Stewart, in his book, writes about this. He's sort of constantly torn between a desire to make the world a better place and a desire to run screaming for the hills when he sees what goes on in the House of Commons. That is a Tory instinct. So the point, in a way, of being a Tory is you are very unsure whether politics is worth doing or whether you should do something more modest, more straightforward, less pretentious, less vainglorious. You can't do politics without quite a lot of vanity. So Tories are conflicted. And Gulliver, by the time he comes back, he's like the extreme version of this being conflicted. In the end, he can bear to eat his meals with his wife and children. He sort of reconciles himself to it. But the thing that he does decide is he's got to withdraw from the world. Now, you might say, how can you be a Tory and withdraw from the world? Actually, obviously, you can't be a Tory politician and withdraw from the world. But the point about being a Tory politician, I think, and I think Swift captures something of this, and he probably feels some of it in himself, is that it's a real struggle because you're fighting the impulse to withdraw from the world all the time. Well, I think we can all sympathise with Mrs Gulliver. So here's another question from a listener also about Gulliver's travels. Did Swift hope to persuade readers to follow his political views? If not, was there any underlying aim beyond entertaining his readers? So what makes it such an interesting book, and I think I said this in the episode, is that it can be read in all of these different ways. It's it's very specifically, satirically about a period and a set of controversies in early 18th century English politics. It's a much broader and wider satire or allegory about the human condition. It's an adventure story. It's quite funny. It's quite scurrilous. It's scatological. It appeals to children and it appeals to people doing PhDs in 18th century political history. So I hesitate to say he was trying to do this and these were the readers that he had in mind. I think there are a few things that can be said in answer to that question, one of which is I don't think he would have believed that he was going to change anyone's mind politically in the sense that if you think of some of the satire in it, so in in Lilliput, the satire of a partisan world between the high heels and the low heels and the idea that these partisan divisions are ridiculous because they're based on nothing. And he was living in a profoundly partisan age, as we are living in a profoundly partisan age, where there is almost no communication between the two sides. It's not that they don't understand each other. They don't want to listen to each other. They don't want to talk to each other. I think Swift would think in a world where politics is ferocious, deep-seated, internecine struggles between groups of people about nothing, 
you're not going to persuade people to switch, switch sides. It's almost impossible. And it's true of our politics that you don't win elections or losing elections by flipping voters because it's really hard to flip voters. You either persuade them to vote or not to vote at all to stay at home. In American politics, turning Democrats into Republicans and Republicans into Democrats is really hard. There are some people who are amenable to that, but they are the minority. And I think Swift would say of his own age, it wasn't a democratic age, but the idea that these politicians could could be flipped, particularly by a book like Gulliver's Travels, would be, well, it would be ridiculous. The high heels and the low heels, they're set in their ways. I mean, if they could see that there wasn't any difference between them, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing anyway. I more think it's like that line from Coriolanus. So in Coriolanus, I said the two instincts that people have in a political setting that they just want to scream at the other side. One is, I banish you. I don't think Swift is doing that. And the other is, God, if you could see what you looked like, if you just knew how you appear to the other side, if you knew how ridiculous you are when you're not looking at yourself from inside your own head. But as Coriolanus says, as Shakespeare says, if you could see the napes of your necks. So I think Swift is doing that. So I don't think he thinks that people who don't agree with him politically will come to agree with him politically. I think what he wants is for people who don't agree with him politically, and frankly, some people who do agree with him politically, to see themselves from outside, from above, from a different perspective, and to see how ridiculous they are. And that might change them. So I don't think he thinks it will change their beliefs. You're not going to turn an Anglican into something else. But it might change the way they hold their beliefs. And to go back to the, what I said in answer to the previous questions, one of the things about being a Tory is it's not so much about what people believe, it's about how they believe. They believe too much, too strongly, the Tory feels. They're too committed to a worldview when we live in a world where you shouldn't be overcommitted to anything. You should be a good patriot. You should believe in certain things. You should defend queen and country or king and country, whatever it is a Tory thinks. But you shouldn't go too deep. Tories are deeply suspicious of intellectuals. They're deeply suspicious of philosophies. They're deeply suspicious of programs. They traditionally would be deeply suspicious of manifestos. You know, They're just trying to hold it together in a fallen world. And maybe Swift thought that if you read Gulliver's Travels, and you were a puffed up politician on either side, or you were someone who was sure of your own views and that the other side were wrong, you wouldn't switch sides, but you would just tone it down a bit. Because if you read that book and you think, it doesn't really matter if I'm a high heel or a low heel, it's not like you'd read it and think, oh shit, I'm a high heel and I should be a low heel, or I'm a low heel or I should be a high heel. You think, oh my God, we're fighting about heels and the size of our shoes. That's not a good look. But you can't see it when you're in the middle of the fight. Politicians are partisans now. I mean, it's particularly true, I think, of American politics. They're constantly behaving in ways that are clearly ridiculous. I mean, just absurd and embarrassing. And they should be ashamed of themselves. And probably they would be ashamed of themselves if they weren't so caught up in it that it's impossible to see it from the outside because all you can hear and see is the abuse coming from the other side. So I think like all good um, satire, Swift's trying to give people an opportunity to just take a step back and see it from above or you know, the whole point of the book from a different perspective. You're very big, you're very small, you're this, you're that. You're just seeing it differently. The only other thing I'd say is why it's such a completely fantastic book. 
and this is probably true of all great books, maybe, certainly probably works of fiction, maybe even great works of philosophy, is that he clearly just got swept up by it as he was going along. So there's a sense in which, as you're reading it, you can tell he's just really enjoying writing it, and he's getting carried away. And he's not, you can't get carried away and also be thinking about how's this going to work as a political manifesto or as an act of persuasion. The thing that he is carried away by is the storytelling. And you can feel it at various points. You sort of think, why are you telling us all this ridiculous detail about the world of the giants or the world of the tiny people or the world of the horses? All of this incidental detail, which is part of what makes it a magical book, an adventure book for children, because it's just this complete imagined mad world that's come out of his head. And I suspect when he was in the heat of writing it, like most people who are in the heat of writing works of transcendent genius, he wasn't thinking about anything except being true to the story. So in that sense, it's not a political book at all. Which of the four books we've done so far have you enjoyed reading most? Uh, Gulliver's Travels. Because because I hadn't read it before. And uh, was the other ones I had read some of or all of them before. And because, so I'd been told that it gets better. And it's true that the familiar bits are the early bits, the little people, the big people, and it's still really enjoyable. But I thought, wow, this is fun, but it's going to get better. And then it did get better. And the final book, the Yahoos and the Huanims, and the completely mind-blowing, passionate, all of human understanding and misunderstanding is somehow captured in this thing that is completely original. So that's like nothing else in a way and doesn't really make sense. It's almost psychedelic. Um, I just, so he got carried away writing it. I just got carried away reading it. Another listener noticed a connection between that episode and one of the subjects of an earlier series in the history of ideas, Samuel Butler's Erewhon. So is there a direct influence? I think there must be. And when I was reading Gulliver's Travels, that is one of the books that I was reminded of. So the influence is only one way. Swift wasn't influenced by Butler. Although when you're reading it, because I'd read them the other way around, so you think, oh, did he get this from Erewhon? But obviously he didn't because they are chronologically the wrong way around. Erewhon is uh, 1872, I think. But no doubt, I mean, no question, Samuel Butler read Gulliver's Travels. And there are various passages in it that that do remind the reader, or did remind me anyway, of Erewhon. And part of it, I think, is that sense, which is probably true of lots of utopian-ish fiction, that the goal is to give you an inverted perspective on your own world. So to show you worlds in which things are in different ways turned upside down. So not so much the the different perspective. So Erewhon doesn't have that big people, little people thing. Um, and one of the odd things about Lilliput, for instance, is that it's a tiny world, but in its own terms, it's completely recognizably just a normal world. So the little people don't know they're little people. They don't live the way they do and behave the way they do because they're aware that they're little. They don't know that they're little until they meet Gulliver. So it's not their littleness that gives you that sense of inversion. Gulliver has this weird feeling, these people are so small, do they not realize how trivial their concerns are? But they don't get it. 
but they have practices, as do various of the, the peoples that he encounters, that are recognizably like what you might expect in, in his case, 18th century England, in Butler's case, Victorian England, and yet upside down. And one of the things that both books are interested in is punishment and the weirdness of punishment. Like, why do we punish people the way that we do? So one of the lines in Gulliver that reminded me of Erewhon was, I can't remember which of the, the lands he's in, where he says, well, the thing about these people is they think it's really weird if you want people to behave well just to punish them for behaving ba badly. Why isn't society organized to bribe them to behave well? So rather than sort of being hauled up before the courts because you've committed a crime, why aren't you hauled up before the courts and sort of put on trial to see whether you did something really, really good and then given, you know, your sentence is have £10,000. And why don't you make that a sort of public spectacle if you want people to behave well? That's a very, so that's swift, but it's very like the kinds of things that you get in Erewhon where he's playing around with the idea and he has these, these sort of fantastical court cases. In, in the case of Erewhon, people are put on trial for getting ill. And Butler's point is, we live in a weird world where we think that moral failings are punishable, but physical failings aren't because the line between a moral failing and a physical failing is very, very hard to draw. And Butler has a lot to say about addiction and alcoholism. And is that a crime? Is that a moral weakness? Is it a physical weakness? Why is sickness one thing and so-called criminal behavior something else? So he imagines a world in which if you commit embezzlement, you get sent to hospital to get better. And if you commit consumption or tuberculosis, you get put to death. So it's completely mad. And it's very, very Swiftian. So those were the bits that, that definitely reminded me of Swift. The difference is that in the case of Erewhon, it's inspired by Darwinian ideas of evolution. So the randomness in Erewhon is Butler read Darwin and came to realize that it's all just sort of kinks of evolution, that evolution is random mutation. And so we have ended up the people we are in the societies we do because of things over which we have no power to control because they are just part of our inheritance. He didn't know then it was genetic inheritance, but they're part of our evolutionary inheritance. So we are who we are because of things that shaped us eons ago and over which we had no control because they are beneath the surface of, of human choice and human volition. And so we should recognize that how we live is really contingent. Like we think we're in charge of this thing. We think we, we make choices that shape who we are, they are nothing compared to the choices that shape who we are over which we have no control, which are our evolutionary inheritance. We are the creatures we are because of things that happened so long ago and so hidden in the midst of time that we'll never understand them. But imagine those things had happened just a tiny, tiny bit differently. We might live in an upside down world. Swift isn't doing that because he's not got a Darwinian or any other kind of evolutionary sense of how our human condition evolved in that way. He's a, he's a conventional Anglican clergyman. But I think what he's doing with his version is not doing it over time like Butler does, but doing it over space. So, so geography is what gives him that sense of perspective. You go in the more conventional utopian way, you go to these far away, non-existent, but imagined places, and they give you an upside down world because maybe geography does that rather than time. So in Swiss world, it's you're sort of meant to believe there might be another side of the world in which everything is really upside down, or the people are little, or the people are big. I mean, who knows, right? It's you know they're aware that there is a world out there that they don't know, that's unexplored and undiscovered. 
by the time Butler was writing, that that isn't really the case. And he wrote Erewhon in New Zealand. So he literally was on the other side of the world. And he saw New Zealand and thought it's different, but it's not that different. But let's imagine it as though it were completely different. Swift is doing it by saying, let's imagine places that are sufficiently remote, really hard to get to, that they might not for evolutionary reasons, but for other unexplained reasons, have mutated and be the the inversion of who we are. They they reward rather than they punish. You know, all sorts of inversions. There's one bit where he says, you know, in this society, the way they do politics is they they have a parliament and people get up and they make their arguments passionately, ferociously against the other side. And if you make a really good argument, like if you really make your case that the other people are wrong, you have to vote for them and not for you. And that's how you get good laws. So the more passionate and convincing your argument is, the more you're required to vote for the other side because people are terrible judges of their own arguments. The idea being maybe there is somewhere in the world where they where they do it like that because what they both have in common is it would be insane to think that the way we do it here is the only way of doing it. And it would be just as insane to think that the way we do it here would make sense to anyone from anywhere else just because that's how we do it here. As always, you've got some people thinking about Trump or at least thinking about whether you're thinking about Trump. One listener says, given David Runciman's obsession with Trump, I'm surprised he didn't point out Trumpism is more anti-Whig than anti-woke. What do you say to that? Hmm. <laughs> um, is it? Uh, I think I know what that means. I mean, it is anti-woke, but um, anti-Whig in the sense that it's definitely Trumpism is anti that sort of pretension of progressive politics to know better and to have wizard schemes for making the world a better place. And you know, Trump has and channels a widespread fury at living in a world where it f- feels like the the Whigs, the progressives, the, the schemers are scheming for all of us. And as I said, when talking about Gulliver's Travels, one of the things he's really interesting about is conspiracy theories, not as we would call them, not as he called them, and the ways in which in a world of Whigs, um, it's quite tempting to think that their schemes are literally schemes. They're sort of plots and secret agendas because they are schemers. To be a Whig, to be a scientist, to be a progressive for Swift is to be a schemer. To be a Democrat for Trump is to be a schemer. But Trump's not a Tory, so he's, he can't be an anti-Whig in the sense that he's a Tory. He doesn't believe, I think, in... I mean, he, in a weird way, he does believe in uh, restraint abroad, but he doesn't believe in prudence at home. He's not a Tory, but one thing he has in common with Gulliver when he comes back from his last journey in the state that I said means that he is a Tory. So this is the one thing that Trump has in common with that version of Gulliver is Trump is really squeamish about the human body. He's like really repulsed by particularly the female human body. He sort of gives clues to this all the time. And Swift, Gulliver's Travels, is, is a, it's repulsed by the human body anyway. And one of the things that makes the Yahoo so disgusting is that the human form is, is unclothed, it's naked, it's hairy, it's dirty, it's messy, it's secreting things. And you can tell that Swift just finds it all completely disgusting. But there's a misogynist streak in the earlier parts of the book where he seems particularly repulsed by the female human body. Don't know what Swift sexuality is. I mean, I assume that Donald Trump is not gay, but he definitely 
he's really squeamish about the things that the human body does. So he's a germaphobe. He hates um, he hates all the things that come out of the human body, and he's turned that into a sort of political weapon. He's he sort of channeled his repulsion into a generalized repulsion of the other side, which is sort of in a way I don't know if it's anti-wig, uh, but it's not straightforwardly anti-woke. It's like he somehow it's part of his political genius. He's weaponized the disgust he feels being among human beings and there are enough human beings who share that or at least can be persuaded that that's a way of channeling the different kinds of rage that they feel that he's he's turned it into a very effective political platform i don't think that his supporters are all germaphobes i'm not sure his supporters are all conspiracy theorists but i think to be a supporter of donald trump you have to be angry about something donald trump is angry about he's angry about the human body and when I look at him, I so someone once told me a story which may or may not be true of someone they knew, so this is at least two removes, who worked on the US series of The Apprentice, and one of their jobs was to go into the dressing room when Trump was getting his makeup on. And Trump is very trussed up human being, so like, you know, to get him in his suits, there's a lot of wrapping and girdling, and because he's an overweight man, he's not in good shape, but he has to present to the world as this sort of solid titan of a man. But when all the bandages come off, it's it's pretty disgusting, I was told. And so this might be self-loathing too. I don't know. But um, is that anti-Whig? It's not anti-Whig. It's not Tory, but it's quite Swiftian. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Another listener wonders more generally about Trump and cruelty, writing, I note that just recently Trump told his supporters that the survivors of a school shooting should just get over it. I find this sort of wanton cruelty quite beyond the pale, but wonder whether it's now an effective tool in today's political world. So in a way, the thing that makes me think of actually is Coriolanus. So Coriolanus is cruel. And Coriolanus's political message, insofar as he has one, is, I don't care about your problems. Like, stop whinging at me. Stop whining. Trump doesn't like whiners, and he thinks that liberals and others are all whining, whining at him, whining about this, whining about that, all to try and sort of do him down. And Coriolanus one of the things that he conveys very effectively to the plebs in that play is that he's just not interested in their problems. Their problems are not his problems. Get over it. So the implication in Coriolanus is that that's actually potentially quite an effective political strategy, that treating them with contempt is a way of getting them to think that you're an authentic person and also that you're pretty hard. And people quite like that. People respond to hard men, usually men, in politics. The problem for Coriolanus is that 
he can't just do the minimal thing you need to do. So he doesn't ingratiate himself at all with the people. He tells them, I don't care. I don't want to, I don't want to hear your problems. And they still acclaim him. I mean, they would still make him consul. He just can't bring himself to say to them, look at me, aren't I wonderful? Because he thinks that demeans him too. So he can't do the minimal thing that you need for politics, which is not not to be cruel, but which is to say, aren't I great? That's what gets him into trouble. So that is clearly not Trump's problem. So Trump does not have a problem saying to the people about whom and to whom he's being cruel, by the way, aren't I great? So in that sense, Trump is is Coriolanus with extra political skills. The difference is that Coriolanus is genuinely a soldier and brave, and Trump is not a soldier. And I don't know if he's brave or not, but you know he needed Theresa May to hold his hand to walk down a flight of stairs. That's not very Coriolanus-like. He's um, he's not Coriolanus at all. He's uh, he's the guy who presented The Apprentice and is probably wearing a girdle. So he he does do everything that you need to do to make the politics of cruelty work, which is you have to you have to stick to your guns. <laughs> you know, Trump's view is never apologize, never explain, and that is a very effective political strategy. That the reason that's been a mantra for hundreds of years is that it often works if you start apologizing. You know, when Trump was persuaded, he had to apologize for that tape, that grab him by the pussy tape. And he started doing the apology and it literally stuck in his throat and he couldn't record it. And he said, I'm not doing this. I will never apologize for anything. And all the people around him said, you're finished. If you don't apologize for this, you're finished. This is this tape is cruel and it is demeaning and it's insulting to half of the electorate and more than half of the electorate because it's also insulting to all the men who think it's disgusting. And if you're not going to apologize, you're going to come across as not principled and hard, but just a horrible human being. And he said, yeah, but if I apologize, I'd trash the brand. So he didn't apologize. And a few months later, he was president of the United States. So is it an effective political strategy? Yes. Is Trump Coriolanus? No. So we've had some more uh, general questions and comments about the series and the choice of fictions. And I think this is quite an important one. Somebody wrote in and asked, I'm curious about and increasingly bothered by the narrowness of the focus on male writers. Is this a blind spot, a personal preference or something else? If so, what? So without sounding too defensive, it's not a blind spot, I don't think, because I'm very aware of it. And it's not a personal preference. It's not that I'm choosing to talk about uh, male writers because I feel more comfortable talking about male writers, although you know, there's always a question when trying to talk about a book written by a female writer, whether you fall into the trap of mansplaining, and I do my best not to. It's It's about chronology. So we do these series chronologically the previous series about the great political essays, the first three were by men. Uh, Montaigne, who was the only person writing essays when he wrote essays, so there was just him to choose from. Then David Hume, then Thoreau. But in the 20th century, I talked about Virginia Woolf and Susan Sontag and Joan Didion and so on. And it it just becomes much, much more varied. But it's, it's a lot harder, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries, but also in the first half of the 19th century uh, to find political fictions by women. I'm not saying that there aren't any because there are some. And in fact, in the last episode that 
we recorded on Tegenev, I did in passing talk about Pride and Prejudice, which is not a particularly political book, but is as great a novel as any that's ever been written. But I'm wary of really straining to include them in order to make a point. So I, I, I try to avoid that. I've chosen books that I feel that I can talk about and I have things to say about. And to start with, sometimes they're books that I'm familiar with. I think to shoehorn in female writers in the very early part of the story, I would have to go to places where I'm, I, I probably feel I'm not qualified. And it might also involve, because it could be an equally legitimate question about works of fiction outside the Western tradition. So we're going to come to some of these. But at this point, I don't think I'd know how to talk about 16th or 17th century works of fiction outside of the Western tradition. So it's partly my own limitations. It's partly the history skews one way early on. When we come back to this series, the next book will be by a woman. It'll be by George Eliot. The trouble with George Eliot, for the purpose of this series, is her most political book, Felix Holt. I tried to read it once. It's sort of unreadable. It's about it's all about politics, but it's I'm not saying it's not very good. It's my fault, not hers, but I couldn't get into it. Middlemarch is a less political book. It's also among the greatest works of fiction ever written. And there is masses to say about it. I don't think it's a contrivance to talk about it as a political fiction, even though it's clearly not just that and even not mainly that. But it is a book about social change and progress and class, and hierarchy, and science, and religion, and hypocrisy, and guilt, and trust. Well, that's enough for a book about politics. So the next one will be by a woman. There will be other books by women. I'm going to talk about, I'm currently reading for later on in this series, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. That's a book by a woman. It's very long, so I haven't finished it yet. It has, to use a unfortunate term, a pretty problematic account of the relations between men and women. So the fact that it's written by a woman does not mean that it's not an extremely uncomfortable read when it describes what the author thinks that women want from men. But it's also an incredibly influential and important book, as important as any work of political fiction, perhaps in English, of the 20th century. Its influence on Silicon Valley is terrifying. So these are great in all sorts of different ways. That one, I'm not sure it's a great novel, but it's had a great impact. It will get more varied, I promise you. But I don't think I can do it until we get past the middle of the 19th century. That's my limitation. But it's not a blind spot, and I think about it all the time. I hope that explains the choice of books to the listeners. Finally, we'll end with um, another question from a listener. What about TV shows and movies? Which are fictions too? Which are the great political ones there? So I'm not going to answer this question. I'm not going to answer the second part of this question because it would take a long time. And also because I want to do a series about that. I would love to do a series about the great TV shows and movies. And I hope that we will in future. I'll do them or we'll get other people on to talk with me about them. I'm conscious. So for instance, what's a great political TV show? The West Wing is a great political TV show. There is a podcast, there was a podcast, I think it's finished now, about the West Wing, which I think ran to 178 episodes. And um, and still, I think there's demand for more. 
to do the West Wing in 50 minutes, I'm not sure. I would love to do the thick of it. So the thick of it, it seems to me to be a great political TV show. I would quite like to do 178 episodes on the thick of it and going through episode by episode, trying to connect the predicaments and worse that these people find themselves in with things that have happened in, in politics recently. I don't think we can do 178 episodes on the thick of it, but I'm not sure how you do it in one episode. So we'll have to think about that. But there are great movies too. One of my favorite political films is In the Loop, which is the, the sort of film version of The Thick of It, Armando Iannucci. Another one is The Death of Stalin, Armando Iannucci. Those are films, they're more self-contained. I think In the Loop is just completely brilliant. It's one of the films I can endlessly rewatch. I would happily do that. But there are hundreds of others that one could do, TV and film, just the series on the great political films would be fantastic and somewhat overwhelming. So I'm not going to answer the question now, but I definitely think on this podcast, before too long, there will be a History of Ideas series on the great political films, and probably there will be another separate History of Ideas series on the great political TV shows. And we are always, always open to suggestions. Well, we do quite often get asked if we're ever going to look at political pop songs. What about that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Yeah. <laughs> I think we could do that. I'm now thinking. I'd, so I get so the the reason that makes me nervous is it could be really pretentious, um, but maybe not. You'd have to choose them carefully. I know that at some point, potentially in this series, or if not in this series, maybe as a separate series, I want to talk about musical theatre because I think some of the great political fictions are musicals. I will be talking about Hamilton in this series. I'm not sure, but I might also be talking about Evita. And there are some great political songs in Evita. So I probably should emphasize at this point, we are open to suggestions. So this series is not finished. There are going to be eight more episodes. I have some idea of what's coming next. George Eliot, Trollope, Bertolt Brecht, Ayn Rand and others. But we're always open to suggestions. And there will be many different, I hope, future series with, with different themes around the great political, whatever it is, maybe even including pop songs. But we are pausing this series now because we've got other things that we want to do and maybe are a bit more urgent. So coming up next is our series with Gary Gerstle on the ideas behind American presidential elections. We are going to be talking about, in the first instance, eight elections 1800, 1828, 1860, 1896, 1912, 1936, 1980, 2008. Pivotal American presidential elections. What were they about? What were the ideas at stake in those elections? Did ideas shape the election? Alternatively, did the election shape the future of political ideas? And what connects them? We're going to try and find themes that join those elections up in various ways. And ultimately, when we come back over the summer with Gary, talk in much more detail about the presidential election of 2024 and where it fits into that history. God help us. We're also going to be doing after that in April, a series with Leah Ippi on the history of freedom, different conceptions of freedom from the ancient Greeks to Silicon Valley, from anarchism to existentialism. After that, we're going to be doing a series on the history of bad ideas with a range of different guests, talking about the ideas that they think are bad, but which were persuasive to many not bad people. Bad ideas that good people have stuck with for too long. 
We're always open to suggestions. We're always open to questions. If you follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, you can share your questions that way. We're also soon going to be launching a fortnightly newsletter to go along with this podcast that will have guides to reading, information about what we've been talking about and so on, connections to contemporary politics, things written by me and other people, but also a space for your questions, more detailed questions, more in-depth questions. We want to do more of this. We will tell you soon how to sign up for that. And before long, we'll be telling you how you can subscribe to Past, Present, Future and get extra episodes, bonus material and more. So we've got a lot coming up on this podcast. At the risk of sounding cheesy, we're pretty excited about it. And we hope you are too. If you enjoy it, please stick with all of these series. If you think of people you know who would like it, do please, I don't normally say this, but do please share and recommend. And do please join us on Thursday. It'll be Thursdays and Sundays for the next month. The ideas behind American elections, starting with the election of 1800, the Hamilton election, though Hamilton wasn't standing. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.